0: Hello, and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. I've been doing this now for, wow, 25 years. (laughs) Yikes. And I started podcasting back in October, and I'm so delighted you've joined me. Today, we're going to be talking about the organization, This Is My Brave. I guess she got the title from the saying, my bad, and so, you know, my bad. So now it's my brave. Jennifer Marshall started This Is My Brave, and I'm going to tell you of the story of how it began. It's a program that features people with mental illness talking about living with their mental illness. I actually participated in the local program of This Is My Brave a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to tell you about my experience. Then I'm going to share with you my own story of living with panic disorder, and I met a stunning young woman named Caitlin McDowell, And I'm going to share excerpts of her piece as well. I was so blown away by her talking about living with her bipolar disorder. Then last but not least, we're going to read an email from a listener, and we're talking about the relationship of past trauma with perfectly hidden depression. I've had three episodes on what I term perfectly hidden depression, which is a syndrome of behaviors where someone is depressed, but they have created a persona that's almost perfect and hides their pain from the world, and sometimes even from themselves. So we'll read that email, and I'll give my answer. I first met Jennifer Marshall via the internet. She had found A post from actually a a friend of hers whose son had killed himself quite suddenly, quite unexpectedly, and that mother had found on the internet my work on Perfectly Hidden Depression. Jennifer Marshall saw it and then actually tagged me in that post. So we began talking. Her work with This Is My Brave had recently been discovered by Oprah and was featured on Oprah. She was a fascinating young woman to talk to. She has bipolar disorder and had written about it first using a pseudonym because she didn't want people to know who she really was, and then she came out in the open. In fact, she's been featured on the Washington Post along with other people in social media who are trying to dismiss the stigma of mental illness. So This Is My Brave is a program where people with mental illness actually audition to be in it and the program features these people and their stories, and you get to see that people with mental illness are your neighbors, your your lawyer, your nurse, your your psychologist, and it's been highly successful. In fact, Jennifer has gone international and has is beginning to travel the world with her idea and her program. So I participated in the Local One several weeks ago, and that night was incredible for me. I have to tell you, it was very hard for me to make that decision. I didn't actually audition. The people who were putting the program together are friends of mine, and they knew that I had written about having panic disorder, and they asked me to join the cast. I thought about it long and hard, and I thought, well, okay, you know, I've already written about having panic disorder. It's no big deal, right? Well, it was a big deal. It's quite different to stand in front of people that of course you can't see because the lights are in your eyes. You're on stage and you're talking about very, very private things that maybe even have been secret. Certainly people who know you, it's not the first words out of your mouth. I'm you saying, hey, I'm I'm Margaret Rutherford. I have panic disorder. But I wanted to tell my story and I had the support of my husband and son. So I did the program. I watched as a man who not only had a history of severe drug use, but also had bipolar 1 disorder. I watched as he read his story, taking incredible responsibility for the mistakes he'd made, but then realizing slowly that he had bipolar disorder, and that there were reasons why he felt the way he did. This big guy with tattoos running up and down his arms, in fact, probably all over his body, was doing great until he came to the part where he was talking about the impact of his disorder on his family. He couldn't keep on reading. His wife eventually came from the audience and stood by him as he finished his piece. It was incredibly moving. Other stories were funny, made you laugh. Other stories made you want to tear up. But the audience, who of course was probably mostly made up of family and friends of the people speaking, the audience was incredibly supportive. Even when there was a pause in the action, when someone got a little choked up and couldn't continue, there were calls from the audience, "You can do it." I will never forget that night. In fact, I get a little choked up myself thinking about it, as you might could have told from my voice. But today, I want to share with you my own piece first, and then as I mentioned in the intro, I want to share some excerpts from a young woman's piece on her own bipolar disorder. Thirty years ago, I was sitting in my psychiatrist's waiting room in Dallas on a hot, muggy afternoon. I'd said hello to his receptionist, Kathleen, who happened to be his wife. She was your quintessential version of a 1980s Texas woman coal black hair, poofed up, Barbie style, jangling bracelets that hung generously on her arms, and she wore sweet perfume that you smelled as soon as you walked in the door her smile was warm and kind and i liked her that particular day she came out from behind the glass partition and sat down quite close to me can i ask you something she whispered of course kathleen what is it now you can't tell raymond my psychiatrist that i've asked you this oh uh, okay and there was a pause what exactly is wrong with you <laughs> She was right. Raymond would have killed her. I told her that I had panic attacks. She nodded her head and, and looked sort of sad. And off she went, back to her perch, quite happy with her newfound information. I also could have told her that I'd had anorexia in college, or that I'd become clinically depressed not long after my first marriage ended. What was plaguing me at that time of my life, however, was Anxiety. It started when I was in my late 20s. I was working as a jingle singer by day, singing radio and TV commercials. By night, I sang jazz in various hotels and nightclubs. My personal life was chaotic, but I was doing my best to hide that from those who loved me. I'd gone home to sing at my local church, something I had done hundreds of times before. But as I took my first breath, my body started shaking, gently at first, and then violently. My heart was pounding. Sweat was beginning to roll down my legs. Choir members around me held out their hands, afraid I was going to fall. I was mortified. I barely got through the song and left the church, frightened and confused. Yet it was several years afterward before I sought treatment. I didn't want to believe that I had a mental illness, so I tried to hide it from myself and certainly from others. For you see, when I'd been anorexic... I told myself I was just thin. When I'd become depressed, I'd rationalize that I'd made a terrible mistake and was simply unhappy. But anxiety was invading my life. Interestingly, I didn't mind so much the anxiety. It was the shaking. I hated that my anxiety, my vulnerability, showed. So I was in Raymond's office to get rid of it. I wanted it gone Out. I hated my panic. It embarrassed me. I never knew when it would emerge. Singing, performing, which all my life had been as natural as breathing in and out, had become frightening. It was beginning to seep into other situations, which now I know is called social anxiety. I felt at seemingly random times like I needed to run away from simple conversations due to a creeping trembling that I knew could grow to immense proportions. Many things changed over the years. Personally, I started making much better decisions, and I changed professions. Yet 30 years later, I still have anxiety. Perhaps if you've ever talked with me one-on-one, you may notice that I often lean against the wall or steady myself with a chair. That's my anxiety. You might see that at a party, I find something to do. I pick up plates or serve food. That's my anxiety. And even as I'm writing this, or with you today, talking about it, my heart is starting to race. My stomach feels jittery. I feel as if I've suddenly drunk a bunch of caffeine when all I've had is orange juice. That's my anxiety. Tonight, I debated strongly whether I would take the meds that keep my body calm. They're called beta blockers, and they work very effectively with performance anxiety. You would see me far differently. A bit like seeing Michael J. Fox without his meds for Parkinson's. But I decided my message was more important than the perhaps dramatic show that might go on if I was medicationless. I've seen therapists for my anxiety. I understand the source. Part of it is genetic, as my mother suffered with obsessive compulsive disorder, and a paternal grandfather I never knew had panic attacks. I struggle with perfectionism, and there's an ever critical voice. I battle inside my head. I'm much better, but I'm not cured. In fact, two years ago, I experienced the worst panic attack of my entire life. This time, while driving on the highway, I'd never had panic driving before, and it was horribly frightening. It was as if I'd developed a new strain of my illness with no immunity to its devastation. It's been another hill to climb, Another opportunity to learn and grow. Because you see, it does no good to hate my panic. That's what I've learned. It's as much a part of me as whatever competence I have. It's me at my most raw. It's me at my most vulnerable. But it's me, whether I like it or not. So my message is this. If you love someone with mental illness, love them for all of who they are, both their vulnerability and their strength. If you have a mental illness, understand that it does not define you. If you suspect someone has a mental illness, reach out to them. Don't allow preconceptions to prevent you from asking questions and trying to understand. I have a mental illness. I'm not always in control of where my mind and heart can travel. But if I accept myself, I can learn to lean into that vulnerability. I still struggle with body image, but I'm not anorexic. I get down from time to time, but I'm not depressed. My anxiety, we remain on a journey together. So that's my story. I have to tell you that I did not get through it completely without emotion, and the audience, as I said before, was incredibly supportive. I hope if you feel any way like I did, or if you experience panic or anxiety, That once again, you don't hate it, but you can accept its presence in your life and work with it. Prior to reading that night, we, of course, had rehearsals, and I met a woman named, a young woman, named Caitlin McDowell one day. I knew as soon as she began reading that her work was going to be important to hear. I contacted her after the performance. In fact, we had sort of a mutual admiration society going on, and I asked her if I could read her piece. I will interview her when I get set up for interviews. That won't be too far in the future. But I thought her story is different from mine and that this audience might really benefit from hearing it. So I was delighted when she gave me permission to do so. Now, you can read her work yourself on her website at www.kaitlyn.com com at C A I T L I N V M C D O W E L L if you want to read more of what she's written. March seventh will always be a big day for me, a second birthday in a way. On march seventh, twenty sixteen, I was born again. It's only fitting that my mother was the one who ushered me in. I'd been up all night, staring at the ceiling with a continuous stream of tears running from my tired eyes. I was tired, not only from the day or sleepless night, but the five years I'd been crying, fighting, and wishing I was dead. For over the past five years, I'd found myself in over 20 different countries, five different states, five different jobs, countless relationships, 15 different medications, one previous treatment facility, enough tears to fill an ocean, enough booze to do the same, and countless pleas for death. Nothing could soothe the torment I felt. I was on the run all the time. I was running from my misery, greeting it in each place, not knowing it was me I was running from. I watched the clock and waited till a decent hour to call my mom. 5.30 a.m. felt like the appropriate hour to scare the shit out of one's mom. (laughs) Are you up? As I saw the three little dots enclosed in a bubble pop up on my screen, I was immediately filled with relief and tremendous anxiety. Here we go, I thought. No turning back after this. Yes, are you okay, she said. I need help. She immediately called, and through gasps of air, I told her that I couldn't do it anymore, and that I didn't want to. The next couple of hours were a whirlwind of intense tears, apologies, pleas for peace and rescue. I laid in my parents' bed sobbing, as my mom scrolled on her iPad for a refuge. It was strange for me for my mom to see me this way. I knew she knew I was sad, but I'd never let her see the extent. I was her sunshine, her smile. She knew I had been gone for quite some time, but no one knew how to help. Only I could save myself. I found a place, she said, let's go. You're going to be okay, my Kate, I promise. I believed her. I was in that treatment facility for three weeks, though I wanted to stay forever. It was my church, my haven. I was understood there. My demons were welcomed as keynote speakers. I was accepted, and I felt human for the first time in years. I felt like a somebody, a somebody with a story that maybe wasn't tragic, but possibly valuable. It was where I met myself again, and I actually liked her. Then, before I knew it, it was time to leave, and there I went back into the world, back to my life, back to work, and back to myself. To me, human strength is recreating yourself in the rubble of life you once hoped or attempted to click your heels out of. One of the most difficult realizations of an experience such as this is that not much changes. You still have the depression, obsessions, mood swings, and unmanageable emotions. The same vices still beckon like a siren. People expect the same things of you, hold the same standard, and treat you as you were before. Everything is the same. You just gained a small toolbox of hope, tips, and tricks to lead a more stable, healthy, and sane lifestyle. I went to AA. I bought and skimmed every book I could find. I worked in my dialectical behavioral therapy workbook each night. I tried to learn how to meditate, and I hid. I hid because I didn't know how to be part of the world and stay myself. This new, okay self. The world out there threatened my sanity like a pack of vicious wolves. My 25th birthday was the day I decided to rejoin the world. My best friend, who had carried, dragged, and stood by me every day since we were 18, welcomed me back into the world with a cupcake, a single candle, and other small items that stood as a welcoming banner. I must say that amidst these grisly years, there were so many beautiful gifts, Amidst all the darkness, there was always an equal amount of light to guide me forward. For me, this was most often in the form of other humans, who, in my opinion, are extensions of God. When I left home for college, I met my best friend. Her nor I had any idea of what would lie ahead, but something new, something new that I needed the most special, loyal, true, and stable friend to walk alongside me. Callie dragged me around the world, helped collect the pieces when I fell apart, prayed for me as I cried, and uttered, it's not always going to be this way, even when we were both not sure if that was true. She showed me love when I thought it no longer existed. This is true of her and so many others who crossed my path in these years. Now the story from here kind of plays in reverse. I did so well. "'I was on my recovery game. "'I was sure that I'd arrived. "'This is it. "'This is what normal people feel like. "'Then one day, about three months after treatment, "'the darkness came knocking, "'out of nowhere and for no reason. "'It's time,' they said, "'to swing low. "'Don't you remember? "'You're bipolar. "'And like an abduction, "'I was returned to my cell. "'This isn't fair,' I thought. "'I was doing everything right.' I sat analyzing where I could have gone wrong. You did nothing wrong, a voice said. This is your destiny. How do I get out, I asked. That's your purpose. The year continued like this, highs and lows lasting weeks and months at a time. When I wrote this anniversary letter, I wanted to say that I'd killed it. I wanted to say something like, I landed my dream job. I found the love of my life. I achieved tremendous goals, I tamed my vices, I found home, I kicked my addictions, or I finally built a life. I can't. I can't say any one of those things. And because of that, I felt like I'd failed. Failed myself. I thought this year was going to be so different. I thought this would be the year I found happiness, love, peace, and myself. I experienced each of these things, but then I lost them. I lost each one over and over And I thought it was because I was doing something wrong. The only thing I can say for myself this year is that I survived. I can say a year passed. I can say I'm still alive. I can say I failed too many times than I can count. And I can say I'm still standing. I can say I fell down over and over, but I got back up. That's all I can say, and that's okay. That is enough. Fourteen months ago, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and I thought putting a name to my misery and destruction would solve it. I thought a diagnosis, medication, therapy, and books would fix it. A year later, it festers more violently than ever. But today, that's what I celebrate. I celebrate two steps back and three steps forward. These steps might be small, but they required everything I had. That's the thing about this disease. As I stand before you today, all these things are still true. My recovery still feels at times as though it plays in reverse. As I prepared for this night over the past two months, I rehearsed some nights with a beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other. I rehearsed other nights with tears dropping on my notes. There were nights with music and dancing, nights after therapy, and days when nothing in me wanted to be on this earth anymore. But what did I do? I stood the hell back up because that's what we do. I made it to this stage today, and many days, weeks, and months, that's what I do. I make it to the next damn day. For many, making it another day, making it to work, or just showing up for life is a given. To me, it's not. It's a struggle. I fight for each one of my days here on earth, and I can honestly tell you that I've yet to find a day that wasn't worth the fight. What I leave with you is this. If mental illness ever befalls you, fight for your life. Fight for your own tailor-made life. Don't look around for how your life should look. Look within. That's the only place you'll find answers. Decide what you want your life to look like and choose that life every day. I hope it doesn't look like anyone else's. Transformation, recovery, and miracles are possible over and over again. I know because I've experienced it myself and I've witnessed it in others. You are no exception. You are a kindred spirit among so many, and we need you. We need you here. Please stay. Please fight. And please keep going. Fight for your life. In the words of Maya Angelou, pick up the battle. Take it up. This is your life. This is your world. You make your own choices. You can decide life isn't worth living, but that would be the worst thing you could do. How do you know? So far, try it. See it. So pick it up. Pick up the battle and make it a better world, right where you are. It can be better, and it must be better. It's up to us. And Caitlin continues, It's up to you. We need you here. Please stay, please fight, and please keep going. Wow, reading that over again makes me... Remember how I felt hearing it for the first time, and I hope that her words mean something to you and speak to you as well. Again, her name is Caitlin McDowell, and you can find her at www.caitlinvmcdowell.com. So if you have a This Is My Brave program in your area, please go support the people who are getting up and telling you what their own journey with mental illness is all about. And if you have mental illness yourself, or you suspect that you might, seek treatment, seek help. Both of our stories talk about really the management of mental illness, and that's what a lot of people with mental illness have. They have to manage it, but it's very doable, and if it's you or someone you love, you can find the courage to do it too. Okay, now we're going to be reading an email from a listener, and she heard me on the Sorta Awesome podcast, which is a great show if you haven't listened to it. So she says, I recently heard you on the Sorta Awesome podcast and have since listened to all of your podcasts on Perfectly Hidden Depression. I'm a 39-year-old mom of three, a teacher living an ideal life. However, I've been seeing a therapist for almost two years now for PTSD symptoms. I meet almost all the criteria for perfectly hidden depression. A lot of my hiding has been intentional because I've always been unsure of my right to feel the emotional pain I struggle with. I know there's abuse in my past, definitely emotional, and all signs and some flashbacks point to sexual abuse. But I have so little clarity on that, I haven't been able to trust myself long enough to heal. Repressed memories is a topic I'm almost afraid to ask you to address in a future episode because there's so much controversy about them. But it has been a major theme in my life as I remember so little from my childhood. Anyway, I'm looking forward to your discussing the common causes of perfectly hidden depression, and I will do that in a soon-to-be podcast. I'm also wondering if depression in this syndrome is different than typical depression. It seems to be along the lines of pain from unresolved trauma, Would that be different than quote-unquote depression? Thank you for bringing this syndrome to light. In a 20-minute podcast, you summed up two years worth of work I've been doing with my therapist, and you've reinforced all the things she tells me aren't healthy or normal. I've just been doing them so long, I thought they were. So there was a lot in this email that I thought was very interesting, and my response is this. Hi, you're asking me extremely thoughtful questions which I so respect and appreciate. Repressed memories are controversial. My own observations may seem to contradict one another. For example, I'm trained in hypnosis and use it fairly frequently, but I'm uncomfortable with doing regression work. My common sense after working a lot with trauma is that if someone doesn't remember something, their inner wisdom may know it would be too much for them. On the other hand... I've also been trained in EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. I've seen for myself how people can make mental and emotional connections that weren't in their quote-unquote conscious mind. It can be emotional for them, even very difficult. But EMDR helps them remember things differently, perhaps more totally. I consider myself still very much a learner concerning EMDR and want to use it more. I would also point out, and your therapist may have already done so, that where there's smoke, there's usually fire. I'm not sure why anyone fairly healthy, unless there was some exterior motivation or influence, would choose to make up sexual abuse. It doesn't make sense to me. Just a thought. In fact, I have a woman as a patient right now who also has these vague experiences, mostly body sensations and difficulties when trying to be intimate with her husband, That certainly suggests that she's been sexually abused, but she's really struggling with the idea of letting that be in her history. So one wonders, are the memories not becoming more clear because of the shame involved, or do they not exist? Certainly in my patient's case, I believe they exist. But back to my answer to her question. As far as your question about the depression part of Perfectly Hidden Depression, the people I've interviewed have shared that their depression is very real. It's simply highly compartmentalized. They can feel suicidal, they can feel hopeless and despairing, and loneliness is one of the chief problems. And it definitely can be connected with unresolved trauma. (laughs) That's very definite. I'm still gathering info from everyone I come into contact with about perfectly hidden depression, how they experience it, what made them identify with my criteria, how they might feel differently than what I'm actually describing. So you're welcome, but you've also helped me by asking these questions. I hope you'll keep listening. I want to thank the people who have recently given me reviews on iTunes. You know, people ask me sometimes if I still see patients because I blog and now I do this podcast. Yes, I do. I see between 30 and 35 patients a week. So getting some feedback about what people are really liking about this podcast motivates me. So thank you for those who took the time to do that or just to rate it even, which takes two seconds. And there's a way to review on Stitcher as well. I'm not quite as familiar with that, but I know you can. So if you get a chance, I'd really appreciate it. There are lots of ways to contact me, and I invite you truly to do so. I'm loving that so many people are emailing me, with either with questions or just comments about the podcast. Thank you so much. My email is AskDrMargaret at com. my website where I blog weekly, is com. You can subscribe to that website and you'll not only get my blog post weekly, but you'll also get this podcast. Because of course it appears there first. I'm on Twitter at doctor underscore margaret and I do tweet a bit. I'd love you to subscribe to this podcast as well. And I do have something I'm really excited about. It's a little gift book that I put together with my words and I worked with two photographers whose work I think is very evocative of what I wanted my words to mean. <laughs> the book is called Marriage is Not for Chickens. <laughs> and it's a little slim book. It literally would take you five minutes to read, but it's meant to be a gift to your spouse, to someone getting engaged, someone getting married for an anniversary. It's under 10 bucks and it's available on Amazon marriage is not for chickens. And boy, is that ever the truth. (laughs) So thank you for listening. I look forward to talking with you next time. This is Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work.